Hi, everyone. It's me, Sam Mishu. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. This is a special episode with one of our article authors. In December, emergency medicine practice had an extra issue on stroke in pregnancy, and I'm happy to say that today I was able to sit down with one of the authors to talk about some of the special needs of this patient population. I hope you enjoy the discussion. I found it very insightful. And as always, don't forget ebmedicine.net, your home for all of your CME needs. Now with three publications for emergency medicine, pediatric emergency medicine, and urgent care, as well as the video courses, the EKG courses, the laceration courses, and all of the interactive pathways, all at your fingertips at evmedicine.net. And now, on to the discussion. My name is Vashi Srinivasan. I'm an assistant professor of emergency medicine, neurology, and neurosurgery at the University of Washington. I spend my time in the emergency department at Harborview Medical Center and the neurocritical care unit. Fantastic. And you're joining us today because you and Dr. Steinberg authored a extra article for emergency medicine practice in December on the emergency department management of stroke in pregnant and postpartum patients, which I found to be an outstanding article. And I was really happy that you could join us here on the podcast just to talk about some of the issues we might encounter in the emergency department in this specific population. Is there a personal interest for you on this topic, or do you see a lot of this in your neurocritical care practice? We see a little bit of it. Just the way our local practice is set up, a lot of times our pregnant patients end up going to different sites, but we've seen a fair number of pregnant patients with stroke and neurologic issues resulting from the pregnancy or from baseline risk factors. And so it's an important topic, and I was glad to have the opportunity to help write this. And really, what a large topic to tackle, because you didn't just focus on ischemic stroke. This is ischemic and hemorrhagic stroke that might occur in this patient population, which I found to be really quite a large topic to summarize, and you did an outstanding job. Oh, thank you. Like I said, it's a really important topic, and I think we underestimate the risk of pregnancy and the maternal risks that are conferred on just the physiologic changes of pregnancy itself. And sometimes that has very serious consequences for the patient and the fetal risks aside, the patient itself is at a pretty high risk for some pretty bad things as a result of the pregnancy. Well, speaking of pregnancy, tell me then how common is stroke in pregnancy compared to, say, the general population? Yeah, it's not super, super common in pregnancy. The, the incidence varies, but it's, it can be as high as 30 per 100,000 people. And that's still, when you age match it to non-pregnant counterparts, it's still three times the, the rate in the general sort of age-matched population and non-pregnant. Like I said, it's, pregnancy is a risk factor for stroke in and of itself. There's a lot of physiologic changes that happen in pregnancy. It's a hypercoagulable state. Your cardiac output increases, and there's cardiac remodeling that occurs. And these physiologic changes in pregnancy that we all learned back in medical school and then forgot about after step one, these changes actually can induce stroke and put patients at risk of stroke. And are there specific medical conditions that also increase the risk of stroke in pregnant patients besides just the pregnancy? Uh, yeah. So as, as maternal age gets older and as patients are having uh, children at older ages, those baseline risk factors can get unmasked. We don't generally think about a 22-year-old having a stroke, but like I said, the baseline risk factors of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, et cetera, some of which can be native and 
exist prior to the pregnancy and some of which are induced by the pregnancy. So gestational diabetes and pregnancy induced hypertension all can confer additional risk to the patient. You know, I found it interesting in the article, migraines was also listed as kind of an independent risk factor, which is surprising because I don't usually think about that as a stroke risk factor. Any idea why that might be? Yeah, it's, I, th I think there's a lot of debate in the stroke literature about why this happens. And we think of migraine as a vascular phenomenon and you add on the vasospasm that occurs in the setting of a migraine, add that on with the hypercoagulable state of pregnancy and the thrombus formation just happens as a result. That's one of the purported mechanisms for why we think there's a higher risk with migraines. And of course, like I said, this is a patient population for whom migraines are not an uncommon problem for them. Yeah. And interesting to read also in the article that if they have migraines and hypertensive disorders, their risk now goes to one in 500 as opposed to 30 per 100,000 pregnancies. That's a huge uptick in risk. And the it accounts for 7.4% of pregnancy-related deaths in the U.S. That's not a small, insignificant number. Thankfully, we don't see pregnancy-related deaths every day in the emergency department, but that's still a scary number. And half of them are hemorrhagic. Is that right? Yeah, about half of these are hemorrhagic. Hypertension being by and far the biggest risk factor. We tend not to think of pregnant patients as having coagulopathies since pregnancy is a procoagulable state, but for a variety of reasons, they may be on anticoagulants. But hypertension, by and far, is the largest risk factor for hemorrhagic stroke. And again, the changes in pregnancy and the development of hypertension within pregnancy, either pregnancy-induced hypertension or preeclampsia, predisposes these patients to hemorrhagic stroke. Now, when you guys were doing the literature review, is there much published in this patient population when it comes to stroke, or is it just mostly guidelines and opinions? How, how does that work? It's, it's actually a little reverse. The guidelines tend not to touch these, this particular patient population, largely because the, the evidence is not great. In a lot of the landmark stroke trials, be it for ischemic stroke, thrombectomy, lytics, hemorrhagic stroke, pregnant patients are largely excluded from these trials. And so we don't have great guidance. For example, there's really no good literature for thrombolytics in pregnancy. We just, we infer it based on some small case series and some small reports of it being safe. We theorize that because alteplase and tenecteplase are large molecules that don't cross the placenta, that there should be a lower attendant risk, but nothing is zero risk. And especially in this population where there are some pretty serious consequences, it's important to really take a step back and say, is this the right thing? Should we be doing this? And then most importantly, involve the patient and the family in the decision-making process. We talked about risk factors a little bit already, but there's a, a great table, table one on page eight of this article that summarizes the risk factors for ischemic and hemorrhagic stroke and breaks them down by non-pregnancy and pregnancy-related risk factors, which I found fascinating. This thing is huge. There are a ton of things on this list that I'm surprised contribute to increasing the risk of stroke. Even things like infections, sickle cell disease, malignancy, Press syndrome, you know, something we don't see a whole lot of, I think, in the emergency department, but can be complications of things like preeclampsia, and that alone will increase your risk. Is that right? Yeah. So all of these, and many of these disease processes are on the spectrum. So we think uh, RCVS, reversible cerebral vasoconstriction syndrome, and PRESS to be on a spectrum of disease processes, and the eclampsia, preeclampsia syndrome fit along the PRESS side of things as hypertensive disorders that induce changes in the cerebral vasculature and cause brain edema. And we see that on neuroimaging. And there, there's a, a 
fair number of strokes that many of which, again, to the readers who see this table, many of them are not going to be surprising or new. Things like hypertension, dyslipidemia, diabetes, tobacco use. This is my plug to say that anyone who smokes should stop smoking regardless of their pregnancy status. And it's just never a good thing. But even pregnancy related risk factors, again, as more people are choosing to delay their pregnancies and have children at older ages, they're utilizing reproductive endocrinology and, and reproductive technologies that facilitate that, but oftentimes require the use of hormones and other medications that can increase the risk of clots and induce a procoagulant state. We talked about the hypersensitive disorders of pregnancy, peripartum and postpartum cardiomyopathy can cause some remodeling within the left ventricle and induce thrombus formation and the hypertensive disorders of pregnancy in and of itself. Then there's the sort of the other kind of rarer things that we think about. We don't think about right away, but we do need to think about in this patient population. Things like antiphospholipid syndrome and patients who have had multiple pregnancy losses. That's one of the triggers that make us think, could this be antiphospholipid syndrome, lupus, sickle cell disease, any kind of connective tissue disorder. And then the malignancies. This is a patient population that does have a risk of malignancy, much like any patient population. And cancers in and of themselves can induce thrombus formation and cause strokes. Again, younger patient population on average compared to the 60 and 70 year olds that we tend to see have atheroembolic disease, but not a 0% risk. Yeah. What about the differential diagnosis? Yeah. So the differential can be wide and it can be challenging. Headaches are common in pregnancy. And as we talked about, this is a population that can get migraines and has a baseline prevalence of migraines in this population. And as we, again, as we've mentioned, migraines with aura especially can increase the risk of stroke up to two times. And these patients can present with complex and hemiplegic migraines with focal neurologic deficits. And that can mimic stroke. And I think more than a few of us have all called stroke codes on patients that ended up having complex migraines. But it's a very challenging differential. And it's very challenging to really tease out who is having an arterial occlusive disease process versus who is having a migraine or a stroke mimic. That's great. And that actually leads me into the pre-hospital setting. We have listeners who work in the pre-hospital setting and our EMS colleagues are frequently interested in how they can help guide the patient's care, maybe get them to the right place or get that critical piece of information that's going to clench the diagnosis for us. What is it that our EMS colleagues can keep in mind when it comes to this patient population? Yeah, this is one of those, I feel like I'm quoting Monty Python here, but if it, if it looks like a duck and sounds like a duck, don't try to overthink this. If it sounds like a stroke, if you get the call saying the patient is hemiplegic and aphasic, there's not a whole lot this is really going to be. Follow your pre-existing local protocols for stroke. Get the patient to the, the stroke center as fast as possible. Get your glucose, get your vitals. The pregnancy status of the patient really at that point is irrelevant. If there's some debate or if there's some question, if we're not sure what this could be, the fact that the patient is pregnant could, in theory, increase the risk of something being a stroke. But again, if this is clearly based on the story, this is a stroke and I'm super, super worried about a stroke, it doesn't matter what the pregnancy status of the patient is. It's just time to go and get the patient to the stroke center as fast as possible. And of course, following all local and institutional protocols and policies for that. Yeah, that's interesting because I could see the scenario where, say, in a large metropolitan center where pregnant patients are taken to one hospital, but stroke patients are taken to another, which one takes the priority in this case. So really, we're focused on the neurological deficits in the stroke, and the pregnancy becomes incidental off to the stroke correct. center. They go. Yeah, correct. And we can, always, we can always sort out the pregnancy part after. 
but time is brain and the faster we get the patient to definitive care, especially if there's an LVO present, we want to get that patient to a thrombectomy capable center as quickly as possible. And the faster we do that, the better the outcomes and we can sort out the pregnancy and all of the considerations that come from that after the fact. I like that. That helps simplify matters. What about when they finally make it to the emergency department and now they're in front of us? What kind of things are we looking for when it comes to, say, history and physical, just the initial impressions? Yeah. So obviously, the symptoms began within the previous 24 hours, or if the last seen normal was within the past 24 hours, we should follow all institutional stroke protocols, so code stroke activations, whatever the local term for it is, but activate whatever stroke activations you need to activate. Get the patient to the scanner as fast as possible. Get your glucose more than anything. If you're going to get a lab, get a glucose. And then get a relevant neurologic-associated history first. Find out what that last scene normal is. See if there's any uh, contraindications to thrombolytics. And get your imaging as quickly as possible. And then obviously, if it's discovered that the patient is pregnant, you're going to make a quick phone call to OB shortly after you talk to your stroke neurologists. And in this case, the monitoring or fetal monitoring and all of that other kind of stuff, that's still all secondary to obtaining that rapid imaging and doing the diagnostics for stroke. Yeah, no, nothing should delay getting that imaging, whether the patient is pregnant or not. It's get the imaging, if, especially if they are a candidate for lytics. It's get the imaging as quickly as possible. Start going through that checklist for your lytic of choice and see if they're a candidate for it. Because the faster we get those lytics on board, the better. If an LVO is suspected based on the story, high NIH stroke scale, pre-hospital stroke screens, get the angio, get your endovascular team mobilized, and get the information there as quickly as possible. If you need to do perfusion imaging, get the perfusion imaging done. Nothing, we shouldn't be delaying imaging because as the OBs will tell us, focus on mom and baby will be fine. Good. Good. That's actually very helpful. When it comes to labs, there's usually a large stroke panel. We're looking at, you know, typical labs plus all the testing for anticoagulants, the 10A levels, the INRs, the PT, PTT, all of that stuff. Is there anything specific that we need to add when it comes to a pregnant patient in this scenario? Yeah. So some of this depends on the stage of pregnancy. A beta HCG is obviously going to get ordered, but again, nothing should delay the imaging. And we certainly shouldn't be waiting for a beta HCG to get a CT scan. Everyone is super worried about the risk of radiation, and rightfully so. But ACOG has essentially looked at this and, and found that less than 50 milligrays, there's been no reports of fetal injury. And when you get a CT plus CTA plus CT perfusion, you're still in the 10, 11, 12 milligray range. And you can even reduce that dose further using low-dose protocols. So it's not, in comparison to the things that they could have, this is actually a pretty low dose of radiation, especially since it's focused around the head and neck. So nothing is zero risk, uh, sure. but I think it's often overestimated. And having those conversations get in the way of rapid imaging is ultimately not a good idea for the patient. Okay. So CT, CT perfusion, all still under the threshold for fetal harm, as far as we know, and supported by ACOG guidelines and shouldn't be keeping your patient from getting into the scanner rapidly. If they're in their third trimester, I found it helpful that there was body positioning mentioned. So, you know, place their yeah. on the side to make sure that we're not going to occlude their vena cava, but that can actually interfere with imaging as well. Is that right? Well, we can accommodate that. Once the imaging has been obtained, the text can rotate and reformat and move things around, especially with modern generation CT scanners. So the ultimate positioning that the patient is in, it really, it's less important. 
Obviously, late-term pregnancy, we want to offload the uterus off of the vena cava, especially for perfusion imaging. The idea behind this being that we're counting on certain times and things happening at certain periods of time following the contrast injection. And there's certain assumptions made on cardiac output and how fast things are moving. And so we don't want anything to interfere with venous return and potentially confound the results. And we see this sometimes in patients with heart failure, that the perfusion scan is in severely reduced ejection fraction, the perfusion scan is less reliable. So we want to make sure that we optimize whatever we can optimize. And there's an easy solution to this. Perfect. I want to go back to labs for just one second. Mm-hmm. We're not typically getting things like fibrinogen levels in patients who are here for ischemic stroke or potential LVOs. Is that something you would recommend? Can we routinely get in the pregnant patient who's presenting with a stroke in case they're entertaining the diagnosis of eclampsia or preeclampsia in this scenario? Yeah, I mean, and I think it, it depends on what's going on. If the initial CT scan shows a large basal ganglia hemorrhage or something like that, they go down a very different pathway. And then at that point, some of those other test results become relevant and we want to start thinking about eclampsia, preeclampsia. Whereas if you see a hyperdense MCA sign and the CTA shows a large MCA occlusion with an LVO in the proximal MCA, very different. I'm less worried about the fibrinogen levels and things like that. We can figure all that stuff out later. My priority is get the patient to thrombectomy as fast as possible. Okay. And if they're hypertensive and we need to treat hypertension in this stroke patient are the guidelines any different than they would be for your typical stroke alert? No. Again, for ischemic stroke, if lytics are a consideration, we want to get that number down to below 185 to give the, the initial dose of ultiplase. Ideally, 180 once that's been given. And then for the maintenance dose of ultiplase or for tenecteplase, we want to get that number below 180 and maintain them uh, at that level for 24 hours. So that doesn't change. For hemorrhagic stroke, again, it varies depending on the disease process. But based on some of the stroke data that we know that super low blood pressure is not ideal, but we do want to reduce it somewhat. So 160 systolic tends to be the number that most people use. In aneurysmal disease or AVM rupture, we tend to want that a little bit lower and the surgeons will push that number down a little bit further. But for your hypertensive hemorrhages, the basal ganglia hemorrhages, lobar hemorrhages, cerebellar hemorrhages, we want that somewhere in the less than 160 range. And some of the Preeclampsia literature recommends numbers as low as 140 or 150. We're not looking to drive that down to that number while they're in the ED or immediately or in any kind of rapid fashion. Yeah, it, it, again, it, it depends on what's going on. And this is where it's really important to get your consultants on board super, super early. You want stroke neurology there. You want OB there. And some of that's a discussion. If we really think this is preeclampsia driving all of this, perhaps using some of the pre guidelines might be a, a better choice. If we think that this is a primary stroke simply just related to the blood pressure, looking at more of the stroke guidelines may be uh, a better choice. So getting those consultants on early to weigh in to say, what do we think is the driving process here? What do we think is actually happening? And which guidelines seem to be more relevant in this particular patient's scenario? Perfect. And again, there's a Outstanding table. This is table four on page 16, recommendations for urgent antihypertensive treatment in pregnancy. It's got dosing, time of onset, and potential adverse reactions for labetalol, hydralazine, nicardipine, and nifedipine. So the things we're going to be reaching for in the emergency department for blood pressure control in someone who's having a stroke or in this particular population, even in the pregnant patient, safe to use. I found that table to be very helpful. Again, the table here shouldn't be a surprise to any emergency physician who's familiar with these drugs. These are standard drugs that we use in the emergency department for any blood pressure control. Nicardipine tends to get used a lot in stroke settings simply because it's titratable and 
it can be turned on, turned off, and acts pretty quickly, and it's out of your system fairly quickly. Labetalol, hydralazine, kind of other PRN agents, again, very commonly used and fine to use in pregnancy. Labetalol is also recommended by ACOG just for blood pressure control and preeclampsia. And then when it comes to specific therapies and strokes, so you already said TPA is safe in pregnancy, and that's, again, not necessarily large study evidence-based, but just based on physiology and chemistry and the size of the molecule. Is that right? Yeah. I want to put a little asterisk there to say that we don't know for sure, but we think based on available literature, the physiology, the pharmacokinetics, that altoplase and tenecteplase are probably okay to use in pregnancy. There's a lot of, I think, <laughs> there's a lot of fine print associated with that. But again, it's we think it's probably okay. And again, at the end of the day, it's a, I think, a joint decision between emergency medicine, stroke neurology, OBGYN, and of course, the patient and their family yeah. on what kind of risk they're willing to assume. And mechanical thrombectomy, much the same. Is that right? Yeah. And we have whatever literature we have in thrombolytics, we have even less in mechanical thrombectomy. Again, the big studies, the named studies that have gone back as far as 2015, all excluded pregnant women or pregnant patients in, this, in their sample. And we don't really know, but there is some limited data that maybe suggests it's safe and it's probably fine and that these patients do well after IVT. There is an advantage that these are largely younger patients than our 16, 17, 80-year-old patients who traditionally get atherombolic strokes. And as a result, the vasculature is less tortuous and the uh, vascular anatomy is often easier to cannulate to get catheters up to smaller vessels. So perhaps there may be a, a little bit of an advantage there. Radiation, again, we can't do this without radiation. So you have to use adequate shielding and coning and dose reduction techniques. But there was one study that uh, I believe we cited that showed that the fetal dose is, can be as low as a CT head if you appropriately shield and kind of do things, protect the patient and cone and use the minimal amount of radiation possible. Limit continuous fluoroscopy and just use pulse dose fluoroscopy to get to where you need to. Okay. I'm curious at your facility. I think a lot of facilities just default to administering TPA in times when they can't get appropriate consent from a family member or from the patient if they don't have the capacity to do it because of their medical illness in pregnancy. Any different there, or would you default to the providing the TPA side of the equation in this scenario? I think that's a hard question, and I don't want to speak for anybody else other than me, but me personally, I would want to make sure that I could at least have a conversation with somebody. I think being supported by consultants and having a general consensus between myself, stroke neurology, and OB, uh, and if we are truly unable to get a hold of anybody and the patient is unable to consent for lytics, I think having all three services agree that we are acting in the best interest of the patient and we feel that this is an appropriate way to proceed. I think that's about as good as you can get in that setting. But the ideal scenario, obviously, is ensuring that all specialty services are on board and that the patient and the family are in, ag in agreement and are willing to proceed. Perfect. And then there's cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. So this is an entity that we don't typically think about in our stroke population, but in the pregnant population becomes a consideration what are some of the physical findings that might, or historical findings that might maybe push us in that direction of suspicion? Yeah, just since I know ED physicians love headaches, the number one 
complaint or the number one symptom that patients report with CVSD are headaches. And so it can be very challenging, again, to distinguish between is this headache, oh, my usual migraine that I always have? Is this the worst headache of my life that came on like that all of a sudden and now I got to go down a completely different pathway? Is this more of an indolent headache? Are they saying things that make me worried, that make me want to get a scan? So it, it can be very challenging. Uh, some of these patients do present with visual changes as well. Again, depends on where the the thrombus actually is and if there's evidence of venous hypertension and cerebral edema as a result of that. But again, pregnancy being a hypercoagulable state, this is a very real risk factor for the development of cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. The overwhelming majority of these patients present in the postpartum period, usually in the first couple of weeks following delivery. But again, headaches in that period of time should at least raise the suspicion, could this be uh, CBSD? And then the preferred diagnostic imaging study for this specific diagnosis is actually CT venography. Is that right? Yeah. Either CT venography or MR venography. CTV is faster since most EDs have the ability, have a CT scanner and have the ability to get the study. MR venography, there's obviously no radiation with MRI. And you can see the parenchyma and you can see is there evidence of stroke or cerebral edema in a little bit more detail. So there's advantages and disadvantages. MRI takes longer. It's not always readily available. If all you have is a CT scanner, no problem. Get the CT, CTA, and CTB and get the imaging data. And then you can make your uh, diagnosis based off of that. Good to know. And then on the other side of the spectrum, when we talk about hemorrhagic stroke and treatment. Now, we already touched on blood pressure management goals. Anything specific as far as treatment goes in AVMs or aneurysms? Yeah. So this is where it gets a little bit more challenging and requires a lot more conversation. If a vascular lesion is identified early on, it's important to get your neurosurgeons involved quickly along with your OBs. There's, in addition to some of the blood pressure control, obviously, if if uh, the patients on anticoagulation, it's important to reverse that anticoagulation quickly. Again, with the caveat that using things like prothrombin concentrate or FFP in a pregnant patient has the risk of sort of rebound hypercoagulability and can be dangerous in this patient population because of the hypercoagulable state of pregnancy. Protamine, FFP, PCC, those are all class C drugs in pregnancy. So we don't really have great data, but again, probably okay to use in pregnancy. Again, it's that risk-benefit ratio of if they have a massive intracranial hemorrhage, you need to reverse that anticoagulation. Um, the new kid on the block, Indexinet Alpha, I guess it's not that new. It's been out for about four or five years now, but Indexinet Alpha basically has no pregnancy data at this point, so we're not really sure. Some of the trials coming out about Indexinet versus PCC, I think will help guide some of that conversation about what can we use and what's okay to use. And again, this is a population that's not often studied primarily in these trials. But getting back to the vascular topic, uh, the uh, this gets complicated uh, in terms of how do you treat this? And that goes outside the scope of the emergency department and more into the ICU and into the operating rooms. But from an EM physician standpoint, knowing that a patient has an unsecured aneurysm or unsecured AVM, it's a conversation to have in concert with OBGYN and neurosurgery about the best method of delivery. It's the increased cardiac output and the hypertension that can occur, in, especially in the third trimester, can increase the risk of AVM or aneurysmal rupture. But at baseline, the risk is no different than in the general population for rupture specifically. But And obviously, if the lesion is secured, the lesion is secured and there's 
there's really no change in that rupture risk. But in an unsecured lesion, sometimes neurosurgery may suggest, hey, we don't think going through labor and pushing and increasing ICP is the best option here. And again, that's a conversation because we want to be respectful of the patient's preferences and how they choose to go through their pregnancy and deliver their child. But at the same time, we need to advocate for the patient and ensure that they have all the information available. So if they choose to undergo a spontaneous vaginal delivery, that they understand the risks that are associated with that. If they choose to proceed with the cesarean section, that they understand the risks associated with that. Fantastic. Well, I think that's a great way to summarize it. So lots of questions there and consultant conversations. <laughs> and thankfully, nothing we have to concern ourselves with immediately in the emergency department. Yeah. And, so, if, and if you're in that, I would say, highly unusual state of you have a, a pregnant patient who's in active labor while also having a stroke, I suppose if it's going to happen to an EM physician, but uh, good luck and do what you can. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can't imagine. Pregnancy is a, is a pretty scary condition, honestly. It, it constantly surprises me that the human race has survived without advanced imaging and emergency departments and hospitals, but, but somehow we... Uh, just we one are. more thing to add to the list. <laughs> so I'm going to summarize for just one second, just so the listeners can can get a, a quick bulleted summary. So in our pregnant stroke patient who is presenting to the emergency department, first, if you're an EMS colleague, you're taking them to a stroke center and the pregnancy is incidental. Second, if they arrive in the emergency department and the history and physical and the complete picture looks like a stroke, you're headed down the stroke pathway and we're not worried about radiation as far as imaging goes. You're getting your stroke imaging as fast as you can, and then you're getting all of your consultants involved, including OB, but that's not the first step. The first step is go get that imaging and don't worry about the radiation. And then if you are entertaining cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, then you just got to add the CTV in that scenario to make sure you get your best chance of making that diagnosis. And then when it comes to management of blood pressure and anticoagulation reversal, you know, blood pressure, there are some good guidelines and most of the medications we reach for in the emergency departments are safe to use. When it comes to anticoagulation reversal, there isn't a whole bunch of evidence, but that's on an as-needed basis. And if you're dealing with someone who's critical from a hemorrhage, then that's probably going to outweigh any of the downsides for your pregnant patient. Does that sound fair? Yeah, that all sounds about right. It's And again, it, it's ultimately, you're going to treat the patient in front of you and the guidelines are there to help, but not they're not written in stone and they're not uh, meant to replace uh, the medical decision-making that happens at the bedside. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast and the author of the article. There are a bunch of things in this article, lots of great imaging, neuroimaging examples. There's also a clinical pathway for how to approach this patient, which will translate into an interactive form. So that'll be available to all of our subscribers at the bedside to use. And there are some great case examples in here of pregnant patients who come in with neurodeficits and how to handle them. I really appreciate you guys taking the time to, to write this, do that literature search, and provide all of these succinct answers for us. I've, I found it to be an outstanding article. Yeah, thank you for uh, having me. And uh, like I said, this is a very important topic. And especially in the last several years, I think pregnancy has come into the national consciousness and sort of the, the care that pregnant patients need to get and a variety of locations can be restricted or can be affected. And so I think it's important that we ensure that these patients get the best possible care that we can possibly provide them. And that's a wrap. 
Thanks to Dr. Srinivasan for joining us on the podcast. Really just an incredible article, and I can't recommend it enough. Please go to ebmedicine.net, take a look at the article, read it, claim your CME, and keep all those little pearls in your pocket for the next time you're treating a pregnant patient with a possible stroke. Until next time, everyone, I'm Sam Mishu. Be safe.